0: Don't make investing a game and don't make it a big source of stress. Reduce it to its simplest component, which is... Like it or not,
1: you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the most hated F word podcast. It is year 2022. Before we get into this wonderful episode, I want to thank you for tuning in to our episodes in 2021. It was a fascinating year. We had wonderful conversations with really insightful people who want to share their messages with us. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to 2022 as we have some wonderful guests lined up to talk about money the psychology of money, the intersection of our minds, our money, and what matters most. Today on the show, I am pleased to have none other than Dan Bordelotti. For those of you who don't know Dan, you might know him as the Canadian Couch Potato. Dan created one of the most popular blogs here in Canada and internationally. I'm sure it's gotten tons of attention, the Canadian Couch Potato, Also, he created a podcast by the same name, The Canadian Couch Potato, where he provides sound evidence-based advice on low-cost investing and much more. What fascinates me about Dan is his career and the evolution, and we'll get into that, and how he used curiosity to help him evolve his perspective in the financial planning space. Dan went from a journalist with no background in finance to now a portfolio manager with PWL where he offers high quality investment and portfolio advice to clients. During our conversation, we we touch on why Dan decided to start that blog those years ago. And we touch on how curiosity really helped him drive his evolution as a planner you'll hear Dan talk about how having a high level of skepticism has helped him become a better planner, thinker, and creator. This was a really fun conversation as Dan is someone who I've always have looked up to and have appreciated his work. And it was nice to get a little bit more information and a little more conversation of the man behind the popular blog, The Canadian Couch Potato. Dan, thank you for a great conversation. I hope everyone enjoys this conversation with Dan Bordelotti. I am extremely happy to have you on the show. Welcome, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start with, I guess, an observation I've made through watching your career progress and going back as I became more uh, aware of you of what you were doing in the past, like your journalism days. And the theme of this question is around curiosity. I have a quote here from Albert Einstein. It says, the important thing is not to stop questioning never to lose a holy curiosity. So Dan, as we even see from your bio and through the work you've done from journalism to all these different books that you're writing on fiction and fiction, you've made a big impact in our industry. And as your bio suggests, many people rely on your sound information. And I, I would highlight that word sound information. From the outside looking in, it looks like you haven't lost what Albert Einstein suggested as the holy grail of curiosity. And it's it seems that ideas require curious minds to become all that they are from that idea. When we look at your story, perhaps you can even go back to 2008 when I believe you were reporting on a seven-day money makeover or anywhere. How has curiosity helped you evolve from Dan to the couch potato to what you're doing now?
0: Yeah, well, it's, a, it's sort of a good place to start. I mean, I would say that you're right. I've always been a curious person, just interested in a lot of different things. I think that's what attracted me to the field of journalism. I mean, I think as a journalist, you you have to have that natural curiosity. You have to have a kind of really broad interest in a lot of different subjects. It certainly helps to become a specialist, you know, as a writer, but it also helps, I think, to take a broader approach to read really widely, learn things from different disciplines And then it informs, you know, whatever work that you're doing. I think it's been probably one of the biggest strengths in my work as an advisor is that I didn't come from a financial background. I didn't have a financial education in university and come out and start working in the industry right away. Because I think for many people who did that, they get a little bit narrowly focused and they start to think of, you know, investing in a vacuum. And as someone who came at it from a very different approach, I think it's helped me understand ways to put investing in context for my clients and to not just see your portfolio as, you know, an end in itself, but as a tool that allows you to achieve some more important goal. So, you know, every time you have a conversation with a client about an investment choice, you always have to remember what that choice is leading towards, right? You know why is the portfolio this way? Why did we make those decisions? If we make this decision in the portfolio now, what impact might it have three, five, 10 years from now, and not just in the next twenty-four hours? So I, I think that kind of holistic approach and those kind of broad range of interests really, you know, help me to work with clients in a in a way that's a little bit more um, I don't know a little a little bit less laser focused on the day-to-day and a little bit
1: more focused on the big picture. Thank you for that. I like how you said put in context when you're talking about their portfolio and like what that means to them when you ask why. I feel like advisors have done a really good job using jargon and really good job of being, to use your words, laser focused on, say, just the portfolio. But yet, as humans, we have this underlying psychological need to be heard and understood. Maybe can you speak about how you feel you've been able to, I know you kind of touch on there, but maybe elaborate on maybe some situations, but coming not from the industry, how has that been able to, perhaps I would maybe argue in some appointments been more beneficial than your technical knowledge, just to be able to speak their language? Yeah, I think, I think the idea is that because I didn't
0: have a financial background, like I said, I had, I had a much more sort of liberal arts type education And my background as a writer, when I came to eventually start writing about personal finance, which was sort of at the end of my journalism career, it was not at the beginning. A lot of that jargon, you know, that you mentioned was jargon to me too. I wasn't familiar with it. And when I encountered it, I found it intimidating and confusing as well. And that wasn't so many years ago. And so it's easier for me, I think, to relate to clients who I know that I'm not going to, that if I drop you know, some jargon into a conversation. And I'm sure I'd slip every now and then and let it happen. But for the most part, I recognize jargon for what it is. And I try to avoid it with clients. And in my, you know, informal emails to them and in the written plans that we do for clients, I use as much plain English as possible. It's not 27 pages of graphs and tables. I mean, there are graphs and tables when those are necessary. Mostly, I have really tried to rely on clear language in explaining financial concepts to people. And I think they appreciate that, right? It's not about talking down to people at all. It's it's about just using clear communication rather than... I mean, let, let's face it too, right? A lot of people in the industry hide behind jargon because it's very easy to throw out a bunch of confusing terms, baffle a client, and then they stop asking questions because they feel like, Well, maybe I don't really understand this stuff. And the point is not that you, if you don't understand this stuff as a client, it's because the advisor isn't doing a very good job explaining it to you. So I consider it, you know, a triumph for me, (laughs) like a good meeting with a client is if I can explain something somewhat complicated that we're doing for them in a way that they understand it and in a way that they can come away and feel like I was listened
1: to You addressed my problem clearly. And now I feel a lot more comfortable with the plan. I speak from personal experience as a planner. I think jargon at times becomes more about ourselves, of trying to make ourselves look like we know what we're talking about and maybe scratching our own needs versus the clients. But at the end of, I guess, at the end of the day, if we're trying to serve the clients, then communication is so important. You have an element through a journalism background. Curiosity, for sure, which, which is important for innovation and so forth, but also skepticism. We might think it's inherently bad, but how has skepticism allowed you to broaden your perspective as you navigate this industry? That's
0: an excellent point because I think skepticism for an advisor, an investment advisor, is incredibly important, right? Because let's start with the premise that, in general, the industry does not create new financial products because they're superior to the ones that exist. They create new financial products to appeal to base instincts, to try to you know carve out a little marketplace for their own company. I guess what I'm getting at is most financial innovations are not really designed to improve things for the client. They're designed to prove things for the people who created the products. There are definitely some exceptions to that rule. But for the most part, I think all of us as advisors, whenever we hear about some new product our first reaction should be skeptical, right? Not cynical. I mean, I think we have to be open-minded. We have to review new products as they come out. But take a look at these things and make sure that they don't just sound superficially appealing. But when you scratch the surface, you realize there's just, you know, layers of complexity, hidden fees, risks that are not immediately obvious, and all sorts of things. And so, you know, when you ask how has it informed my career? I mean, right from the very beginning, I have always advocated the most plain vanilla, straightforward, basic cap-weighted index funds for, for investors. And there have been all kinds of innovations in the years since then. So-called improved indexes, right? Where people take you know the basic proven index, try to change it in a way to make it superficially more appealing. In fact, usually what it means is Someone has created an index that they feel will outperform the old school indexes, right? Which of course has been the bailiwick of the financial industry for forever. And so I think as an advisor and, you know, sometimes clients will ask about them too. Oh, have you seen about this new product, you know, or this new index, this new strategy? And we, I think a lot of times just have to push back and say, I know it sounds appealing, but let's remember why we did this in the first place, right? The reason that we're using these, you know, traditional indexes, let's call them, is they are the lowest cost, the lowest turnover, which means the most tax efficient. They're there because they work. It's not to say that they cannot possibly be improved upon, but if they are going to be improved upon, we have to take a careful look at all of those other alternatives. It's very tempting to fall into the trap of thinking that you know, traditional indexing is old school and outdated and doesn't work anymore, which we hear all the time too. And that we have to sort of switch to some more exotic sounding strategy. Usually it's just, uh, you know, as you point out, kind of our human nature to to not sit tight with what we have and what works, but always be looking for what might be
1: better out there. That last statement, what might be better out there, it gets me Thinking about this curiosity again, but more from an evolutionary standpoint, like our ancestors, like the human condition is to be curious and think, thank goodness they were because you and I are here today, that they started changing when their environments changed. Psychology talks about having the ability to hold one thought or one belief and an opposing one is a form of emotional maturity. In 2010, I believe you started your blog where, you know, index investing was around, but it wasn't as present as now. So it seemed like you maybe, I don't know if you changed personally your perspective, or you just discovered passive investing and didn't see active investing. But at some point, your curiosity led you to have a perhaps a different viewpoint. I, w- I want to touch on on how that came to be. But also, we look at evolution and Kodak and Blockbuster would think like oh darn maybe i wasn't open minded i'm thinking a lot about this lately because adam grant's new book that think again think again book which is a really powerful book which basically discusses the power of knowing what we don't know so let's first start in 2010 it seems like you were thinking again you came out with a popular blog people weren't really blogging as much as they are now about passive investing what made you or what allowed you to adopt this thinking again mentality and at some point, does the financial industry think again and look at different ways? Where I came to it, or how I came
0: to it—I mean, it was a story you touched on a little bit uh, in your intro. And um, you know, I, I attended this workshop as a as a reporter for Money Sense Magazine, where we were working with three couples, one single person, all sort of self-described financial basket cases, and they came to the magazine for what we call the seven day financial makeover. And we put them up in a hotel and every day they talked to different financial experts about how they could improve the various aspects of their financial life. So I was there reporting on on one of the couples and one of the guests that we brought in talked about passive investing. At the time, like it wasn't even really think again. It was like think for the first time because I hadn't really given very much thought to investing. I, I didn't have much in investments myself at the time. It wasn't really preoccupying my life, but I remember him talking about, you know, there's this strategy called index investing or the couch potato strategy as MoneySense was calling it at the time. And if you just follow this strategy, you will likely beat the vast majority of professional money managers, you know, in the order of 80 to 90% of the time over any period of, let's say, 10 years. Well, that blew me away because it's such a counterintuitive thing to say. To me, it was like somebody said to me, you know, there's this really simple strategy you can use and you can beat like 90% of players on the PGA tour as a golfer, right? And I thought, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. How can you possibly beat professionals? And it was only after I looked into it that I started to understand that despite being professionals, right? Most money managers, you know, play under par, if you will, or I guess over par in that they don't outperform the benchmark. And so once I started to understand that, I started to dig deeply into why that was. And then I started to learn, well, it was about costs, but also about human behavior. And then it all started to come, you know, piece itself together. But I found that such an interesting concept at the time because it was very new to me. That's what inspired me to start writing a blog because I wanted to share this epiphany with everybody else. And so, you know, I had a lot of zeal about it at the beginning, for sure. And, and I still do. I think, you know, my thoughts on it have become more subtle over the years. But certainly, I still share the, the same passion to share that enlightenment with other people. Because I think, you know, you and I talk to probably the same people all the time. And, and a lot of people already get this. So there's a tendency for us to feel like we're in an echo chamber. And we're just talking to people who already know what we, what we mean. But there's this huge percentage of the population that has never really thought about it in this way, has never really approached indexing as any or sorry, never really approached investing as anything other than look for good stocks to buy and figure out when to buy them. So there's still a lot of
1: work to be done. How we've been talking about curiosity, I, I just think you you embody it so well. You go to this 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 makeover thing and you've never really heard of active or sorry, passive investing. Then you start a blog that turns into like a legendary blog in Canada, all driven by your curiosity to learn. And then I see you change, maybe it's not change, but evolve to some degree because you were very much do, do DIY, do it yourself. And then you evolve, change, whatever the word you want to use into a planner. Now, how did your thinking evolve to then go into now as a planner? And what value do you see both of them hold a planner and still those low cost investments?
0: Yeah, well, that's a, that's a huge issue, more like a, a huge sort of change in or evolution in my thinking over the years. And the short answer to that is really easy, which is my thoughts on all of this changed when I started to work with people directly, right? As a journalist, I'm writing on the blog, I'm writing these articles, and I can make suggestions about what people should do. And I just assume that, that they would read it. If they agree, they would go out and do it. Once I started working with people closely, so this is, for example, when I joined PWL and I started working with clients directly in like 2012, 2013, we worked with both do-it-yourself investors. So we had a service actually at the time, which was really innovative where we worked with a do-it-yourself investor to do a plan for them, help them set up their portfolio at a discount brokerage, which they would implement on their own. And then that was it. It was a flat fee service. We did manage the portfolio. And that was an extremely successful service. We had a waiting list a mile long for it. And and I think the vast majority of people that we work with did really well. But what we also realized at the time was a lot of people who are attracted to indexing are attracted to the low cost. They are less attracted (laughs) to the idea of actually doing what needs to be done in order to achieve those low costs. It's a little bit like saying I'm attracted to low cost renovation work in my home, but I don't know how to put up drywall or, you know, install tiles. So I don't really care about learning how to do that. I just want it a lot cheaper than paying a professional to do it. So at some point you have to, as an investor, figure out where you want to come down in that continuum. Do You want to go full DIY and do everything yourself, which is the lowest cost, but the most work. Or the other end of the continuum is, I don't want to have anything to do it. I just want to pay an advisor to do everything for me. And then there's a couple of spots in there between where you can have some kind of hybrid model. What we quickly realized working with so many DIY investors is that you can implement a low-cost ETF portfolio for almost anyone. But if you turn it over to them to manage on themselves, they will have different levels of difficulty doing it. Some will embrace it. And be all over it and be extremely good at it. And others will, well, there's a couple of different things that can go wrong. One is neglect, right? I mean, one of the nice things about index investing is it thrives on benign neglect a little bit. You can certainly leave it for a year or two, maybe without major damage, but at some point you need to do a little maintenance on the portfolio. And then, then the other extreme is we would implement a really, good portfolio and people just could not resist tinkering with it, right? So they were adding things, adding individual stocks or swapping out ETFs or making too many trades or doing all kinds of things to sabotage their performance. So that's when we started to realize that you know, for a lot of people, even if you understand the theory and you believe in the theory, you may not be able to manage your own portfolio without a little bit of help. As you know, I mean, the the book is specifically written for DIY investors. I'm still a huge advocate for DIY investing and for the right people. I will say too, though, a lot of it depends on the complexity of your individual situation. So, you know, if you're a young person, you're throwing a few hundred bucks a month into your RSP, that's the only account you have, or you have an RSP and a TFSA and that's it. You don't need an advisor, (laughs) right? You, You should be doing DIY. Just spend the time to figure out how to Implement a simple portfolio. You know I'll now. Look at somebody who let's say has a big seven-figure portfolio. It's spread across five or six different accounts. You know, with let's say you have a spouse that each of you have two or three accounts. You've got registered accounts, taxable accounts. Maybe you have a corporation in there. Now you've got all kinds of moving parts, lots of tax efficiency issues that you may not understand how to deal with. Plus, at that point, because you have a larger portfolio, you're going to qualify to work with an advisor who charges a lower percentage fee. You're probably not paying the one and a half percent that you pay at the bank for a small portfolio. And you've created all kinds of opportunities for an advisor to actually add value for that fee because they can help you manage that complexity. They can do the financial planning for you, which frankly is a different thing from investment management. And so you put all of that together and there are lots of different situations for people, you know, to, to slot themselves into, from full DIY to fully advised. And I've always said to people, it's not one is better than the other. One of those is appropriate for your situation. So you need to figure out how much work you want to do, and then you need to figure out what you're paying to an advisor and what you're getting for that. And that's really the recipe. Right. So it's it's not about fees are bad. It's about Paying fees and getting no service is bad. <laughs>
1: paying fees and getting good service is like what we do in every other aspect of our lives. So, I like how you frame it in that sense that fees aren't inherently bad. It's, are you getting anything from that? Because I find at times the do-it-yourself perspective is fees are bad. They're the worst things ever. And I mean, for something that we we can't avoid directly or indirectly every single day of our lives, money perhaps it's not bad to pay for proper advice. And something that I really think that you have done a phenomenal job now that especially you're a portfolio manager and a planner is you've made financial planning and investment management to some degree accessible for many different demographics. And I I mean this because you touched on if you have a portfolio above a certain size, they can work with a planner and charge appropriate fees. For the individuals who don't have that, you've had your blog, your podcast, all your writing and your book, which I do want to dive into is this book is a financial plan, like greater than a financial plan that you get in many places. Of course, it doesn't have the behavioral coaching to go with it to implement those things, but that's, you know, that costs money. And I just want to commend you for the work that you've done to make sound financial advice accessible for many people.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, that, that was really the goal all along, right? And I, I talk about this a little bit in the book. I can't tell you how many times over the course of you know my career, especially since I started doing the blog, where people would say to me, I, I really... You know, like your work. I like the strategy that you talk about. I'm a little intimidated about getting started myself. I don't really know anything about making trades at a brokerage. I don't really understand how ETFs work. You know, in, except in the most broad sense. Where can I get some help? And you know, my answer to that is, you know, so like, tell me a little bit about yourself. And they say, well, I have you know, seventy thousand dollars to invest in my RSP. And I said, I don't know what to tell you because if you go to an, any investment advisor who works with clients with smaller portfolios, I mean, and, and this is not to denigrate other advisors who work with, you know, who have no minimum investment, but the, the reality is they either have to charge a fairly high percentage fee, right? Certainly, you know, one to one and a half percent at a minimum and often a lot more. And second, in order for them to make a living, they're probably going to have to take on a very large number of clients at that level, which means they're not likely to give you any level of individualized service. If there are advisors out there who you know want to prove me wrong, I welcome them to because I, I would love to know of, of opportunities where I can recommend people. But then the second part of it is there are such a tiny number of advisors in the industry who embrace indexing. There are lots of people who say they do And lots of people who say that they use ETFs, but they use ETFs in an active way. And it's very, very rare to find anybody, any advisor who will implement the type of passive portfolios that I recommend on my blog. And so when those people ask me, where can I get help? I don't know what to tell them. Over the years, I've come to accept that the only thing I can tell them is, look, at this point, you really have two choices. One is a robo-advisor right? Which we can talk about if you want, but is essentially a service that will implement a low cost portfolio for you. There is a fee embedded in there, but it's certainly less than you would pay to most advisors at that asset level. And you don't get any planning services, but at least you get a decent portfolio built for you. Or the other option is spend the time and learn how to implement your own DIY portfolio. And that's what the book is there for, to kind of get people to the stage where they can feel comfortable embracing that DIY strategy on their own. There are products now available that make that easy as ever. Remember when I, when I started the blog, if you wanted to build your own portfolio of ETFs, you were looking at minimum four, probably five or more ETFs, individual funds that you had to buy. Now you can do it with one fund. And so it's not that hard if you're motivated, you know, to to read a book and spend a little bit of time learning how to do it. And that, to me, is going to be a better option for the vast majority of people, you know, with those more modestly sized portfolios that are not going to be able to work with a full service, low cost advisor.
1: Yeah. And, you know, this is a problem that we have in our industry is, is that market, which is a huge market in terms of number of people. And to your point, an advisor just they don't, the time is just not available there to give proper service. So I just appreciate you writing this book, despite you have, you know, a portfolio management position right now that doesn't focus necessarily on that part, but yet you obviously still have a a desire to solve that problem. So I just appreciate you writing this book.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and some clients have kind of joked to me when I wrote the book or I've joked to them. I said, Hey, don't read the book. Cause you'll, you know, you'll end up firing me. And then, you know, we, we joke about it because we both know it's not true yeah. in the sense that if people want to be a DIY investor, they already are. And anybody, you know, who's worked with, with me or, or, you know, with my team, right. or our other advisors on our team, they know the value they're getting for the fees that they're paying. And, if they would, yeah, I mean, the, the reason that they came to us is they were probably readers of our work before. And so they knew the strategy, if they thought they could do it themselves, then they would. So we're not really damaging our business in any way. And in fact, I think I just feel a lot better about it. If I can say, well, look, if you would like to work with us and be a client, great. If not read the book, read the blog, read our work and, you know, prosper on your
1: own. And then I
0: think everybody wins.
1: Now that you've been working as um, a financial planner, portfolio manager, what have you learned or what have you gained insight on humans and our temptation to resist simplicity, (laughs) namely index investing or any other realm of simplicity when it comes to our financial lives? Yeah. How much time do you have? (laughs) Because
0: uh, that is a perennial issue. And so, I mean, just, just to give you the context, I mean, as I mentioned a minute ago, when I when I started the blog, if you were going to build a portfolio, you needed to have multiple ETFs. And, and I admit, I fell prey to the same temptation. Two, three years into writing the blog, I started to create more options for my model portfolios. They got more and more complicated too. I think I had one at one point that had like 10 different funds in it, every conceivable asset class in there. I think the reason was as I learned more and as more people kind of came to me for advice, my natural tendency was to try to sound more sophisticated, right? By creating more and more complex solutions. And it was hard, you know, and I still find this now, it's difficult for me in many cases to have conversations, let's say with a prospective client who has a lot of money to invest. And we say, all we use is, plain vanilla ETFs, your portfolio is probably only going to have a, you know, a small number of funds. We're not doing any forecasts. We're not doing any, you know, security selection in any of this. And you sound like a bit of a chump, right? Like you sound like, oh, I don't really know very much. So I'm just going to throw your portfolio into the default. It's not that at all, but I understand why it sometimes comes across that way. And so over the years, as I've come to appreciate the fact that You know, simplicity is beautiful, and complexity has its place occasionally. But mostly, is just complexity with no benefit. I have streamlined the model portfolios on my site, and now it's possible to build a beautifully designed index portfolio with one ETF. All of the major ETF providers now—Vanguard, iShares, BMO—have these one-fund portfolios. They call them. They're all very well designed. And you can build a portfolio just by buying a single ETF. But there is still this resistance to it. And, you know, it's, it's hard to get across, especially for a do-it-yourself investor, right? Who doesn't need, to, like, I do this every day. I can handle a little bit of complexity. It's what I do. But for a person who just wants a, a good solution at very low cost and easy to manage, these one fund portfolios are beautiful. Now, they have been embraced. I mean, they're very popular, But I do still get pushback from people, you know, who email me and say things like, I saw your suggestion for a one fund portfolio, but hey, if I buy all the underlying funds in there, like six or seven different funds, I can save 0.09% a year in fees. (laughs) And I'd say, well, I guess that's true. But do you really think that that additional complexity is worth 0.09% in fees? I mean, do the math on that, right? That's nine bucks a year on a $10,000 investment. I think people want to optimize. They want to feel like they're not just picking a quote unquote lazy default choice. They want to feel like they're making more active decisions. And you you just realize in investing at some point that if you start with a good premise, then the less you do, the better, right? Get the portfolio implemented and then just do everything you can not to screw it up. And that's, you know, in a a nutshell, the secret to investing success, but it's not a very appealing slogan. So it's something that we
1: all, we all have to struggle with. So your slogan at work is do everything you can not to screw it up. (laughs) we, We don't print that on the business cards or on the website,
0: but in the back of my head, I'm thinking that a lot of the time, right? I mean, you know, we have conversations with clients and they'll say like, you know, what, what's happening in the portfolio. And I said, you know, like, look, we're it's, we keep on keeping on, right. We keep an eye on it. We rebalance it when necessary. We invest new cash as it comes in whatnot, but we don't try to reinvent the wheel every three months based on what's happening in the marketplace,
1: because we know that that is a strategy that's you know, doomed to fail. And I, I think that just speaks to the value of the planner is having those conversations Uh, humans and money have a very long complicated relationship we didn't evolve to save money we would be kicked out of the tribe our ancestors if they were hoarding whatever it was at that time they'd be kicked out now we're told to reprogram and save 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 so i think it's so important that we have these conversations and to avoid ourselves from screwing it up i think there's that uh, fidelity study i can't remember the nuance of it but basically The people who performed the best were the ones who forgot they had an account. (laughs) Yeah, I heard. I remember hearing this conversation with uh, somebody and uh, they mentioned that study and he said, you know, guess
0: whose portfolios did the best? And and the person he was interviewing said people who had died during the study. And he said, well, no, but pretty close. It's like you said, people had forgotten their passwords. I I don't know if this is, uh, you know, an apocryphal story or not, (laughs) but it's a good one. And I would say, though, that, you know, look at for example, workplace plans, right? A lot of people have access to pretty good defined contribution pension plans or group RSPs. And most of those uh, plans have, you know, either default choices where you just get like a target date fund that's just a diversified portfolio that gradually gets a little more conservative as you get older, or they may have an opportunity for you to just buy a low-cost balance fund. And a lot of them use uh, index products as well. So, you know, it's, it's usually a pretty good portfolio with Canadian, US, and international stocks and some bonds in there as well. And nothing tricky. It just rebalances. You know, I feel like, and I've seen it with people too, you know, you contribute a little bit with every paycheck to a fund like that for 10 years. You're not buying any stocks, you're not making any moves, you're just putting that money in month after month after month, and you have you know, this broadly diversified, well-executed portfolio. Look at the results on that. Over almost any 10-year period, those results are going to look very good. And that's not because you did anything particularly clever, it's because you set up a smart plan and then didn't mess it up. And I think with workplace plans, it's a little easier. People don't really have an inclination to tinker with those kinds of plans. They feel a little bit hands-off. Maybe it's a little different if you manage your own investments in in an online brokerage that allows you to trade frequently. Then I think you're more likely to succumb
1: to temptation. Your response there, and in just talking about this complexity and trying or to aspire to be more simple, reminds me of, uh, I recently had a conversation with William Green. He's the author of the How to Be richer, wiser, and smarter, I think. But he interviewed 10 billionaires, investment management individuals. And I can't remember which portfolio manager said, the goal is to be directionally right, you know, in terms of your investment choices. It's not going to always be the most optimal decision or the optimal investment, but it's to be directionally right. And this idea of simplicity and like to your point about the employer plans, just, you know, there might be something out there that's most tax advantage or lower cost. But if we could just be directionally the right over a consistent period of time, like you just said, over 10 years, we might be in a better position. I want to talk about your personal experience with your clients. Well, not personal, but your professional experience with your clients on this idea of embracing the simplicity. So you you advocate, I presume your clients have low cost index funds. As I was reading your work and your book, I, I couldn't help but think of the other benefits of embracing simplicity. And so what I mean by this is there's another book by um, Elder Shafir called Scarcity. And the premise of the book is why having too little means so much. And they go into a lot of studies. They're both academic about how when we have too much information, we get this, what they call bandwidth overload. So there's too much information as we think about a computer going on. When I look at people trying to figure out the investment market, trying to figure out investments while they have a job, kids, all these other commitments, we're really taxing our mental bandwidth, which the research shows that we make a lot of errors after that because we're tired. Our mental cognitive ability is tired. Now, when you've seen clients who have decided to embrace this simplicity, beyond the beautiful, wonderful technical things you guys are doing with their investments and in the book, What other outcomes have you seen in your conversations that people experience when they just let go? No, I think
0: that's one of the most important ways we can add value for people. Um, We work with a lot of clients who are very smart, very accomplished in technical fields, know a lot about investing as well. But I think they encounter the exact type of problem that you mentioned, which is, yes, I, I understand the stuff, I'm actually kind of even interested in it, like as a bit of a hobby. But the thing is, I work a very demanding job. I've got kids. I've got other things occupying my time that are frankly more important. And I'm okay outsourcing that to somebody else. And so there's definitely—I mean, I hear it a lot at review meetings for people to say, "You know, thank goodness you're looking after this because I, I would let it slip, right? Like I—I I can't even remember did I make my RSP contribution this year? And we say, "Oh yeah, we made it for you back in June." right? You know, is there anything we need to do, you know, rebalancing the portfolio? No, we've done that for you, right? We've, we've looked for opportunities to harvest tax losses or something that most people are never going to do. During the review, when we were kind of report what we did and we've talked about, you know, the, the last, you know, the year in review, people realize I'm glad somebody else is looking after this for me because, you know, as you said, I don't, I don't necessarily have the bandwidth to do it. There's a different, type of client too, who doesn't necessarily know very much about investing and never wanted to do it. Right. Even if they had the time, they don't have the inclination. And so, you know, again, people will just say, I'm, I'm really happy to have somebody I trust looking after all of this for me. So, because I know it would cause me a ton of anxiety if I was trying to do it myself, or if I was working with someone who, for whatever reason, I didn't have a great trust relationship with. And I actually think that peace of mind is as valuable as any kind of investment returns we deliver. And and we we always say that as in our value proposition, right? If people are, you know, considering becoming clients, I I always say to them, look, I am never going to beat the market for you. That's not what we do. We're going to capture market returns and you're going to have, you know, as you're going to trail the market by as little as possible because we're going to keep our fees as low as possible. But that's the extent of what we do, you know, as investment advisors. Now, I don't want to underplay that because that is likely to do better than most active investors who are paying more and trying harder. So I don't want to underplay the importance of capturing market returns, but it's not particularly flashy. And, you know, not very many people are going to flock to advisors who promise that they will only beat the market by a little bit if that's all they offered. So I always say in all of the other services that we offer, not only the planning, but as you said, also the kind of peace of mind and and the anxiety
1: reduction is a huge part of what we do. You touched on this as well, is like you can't put a, a value on those other outcomes like you can on return. But when you think about removing all the rumination, all the thinking that we have about our money, am I okay? Am I, do I have to go research something? Potentially it gives you more time to walk your kids to daycare, to school, to practices, to be mentally present during maybe a, a time that you would have been mentally distracted thinking about your money. So you can't put a mon- money on that, but I think to some degree that part can't be ignored. No, and I would take
0: it a step further because I I would say that we worry about things so you don't have to, right? Or because I think any investment advisor could say that, including a very active one. It's like, you don't have to pick stocks because we'll pick the stocks for for you. I think another layer of that is we will help you understand why there's no point in fretting about all those things that you used to worry about, right? So it's not just about you know, we'll pick the investments instead of you. It's more about here's why it's not necessary for you to even worry about reading the business news and learning about the fortunes of individual companies and somebody's latest forecast about GDP and things like that. It's not because we're going to do all of that and we're way smarter than you. It's just because we're going to help you realize that wouldn't have helped you any. And so, you know, that that kind of mindset and and one of the things that I have heard definitely from from readers and clients over the years is they say things like, I don't even watch the financial news anymore because I know that it doesn't really help me in any way. And in fact, if anything, it just increases my anxiety. And so I, I think a different kind of mindset, one that's focused more on people's individual financial goals and less about all of the other things in the market that we have
1: zero control over is a lot more liberating for people. I couldn't agree more with you. And I had pulled a quote out that we were going to talk about earlier, but it's from Henry David Thoreau, which just encapsulates what you just said, but it's, A man is rich in proportion to the number of things he can afford to let go. And I think this idea of letting go of all of this, I guess, underlying desire to control so that you can actually focus on things that make your life more worthwhile while while you're here. And I, I want to point out your stuff and you can touch on this. It's not like you guys had a good idea the, you know, this is a very evidence-based research that you're implementing with your strategies. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, it is exactly that. Right. And that's
0: why I said, it's part of the struggle. Like when we, when we speak to people who don't really understand what we do and why we do it, there is a tendency to feel like you're coming across, like you're not very bright, you know, like, Oh, the reason why we don't, you know, pick stocks and why we don't forecast the economy and, and make big changes in your portfolio is because we're just not smart enough. It comes across that way. I mean, at some point, you just have to be at peace with that. Like, if there are people who think that they're just never going to get what you do and they're never going to be clients and they're never going to be readers, then that's fine. But, you know, always trying to get back to this message is, You know, as you said, it wasn't like we just had an idea. It's like the evidence... <laughs> It is crystal clear that all of these things that preoccupy so many investors and money managers are destroying value, not adding it. And it's so counterintuitive, like the PGA example I gave you before, that it does take a little while for that to sink in. And frankly, even once people accept it intellectually, it's still hard to accept it in your heart because we, I will have sometimes longtime clients who I thought, you know, got all of this. And then will say something to make me think, hey, do we have to go back to first principles here? Because, you know, remember we talked about why that doesn't work? It, again, it's just, we're not really hardwired to implement the long-term simple solution and then wait 30 years for it to bear fruit. So it's a struggle all the time. And that's why, you know, that's part of what we
1: have to do, you know, in this job is to, is to coach people about that. And on the other side, I'm sure you've encountered now where people are like, oh, what have I been doing for the last 10 years? This is so much more peaceful. I feel at ease around my financial lives.
0: Yeah, you, you definitely get that. And I will say too, I mean, I've had the good fortune of you know, doing this for a living during a period that has been really very good for the markets. You know, 2020's brief, you know, crash aside, it has been mostly... A good period with not a heck of a lot of volatility. I didn't have to live through the 0809 crisis as an advisor. I did as an investor. That would be very difficult to deal with. So it's easy, I think, for people to say, oh, indexing is so peaceful and it's so easy to do. During a bull market, that's true. It's definitely harder when markets uh, fall. And we are going to get tested at some point. And that's when we're going to have to really sort of step back and say, hey, remember why we did all of those things during the bull market? Well, they're still true, right? And I know it's hard. I know it feels terrible to rebalance during this period, selling bonds and buying stocks after they plummeted 30%, but we still have to do it. But it's not going to be easy and we're going to get tested. And that's when we're going to see too how many people overestimated their risk tolerance.
1: I really, really encourage it everyone to get out there and buy your book reboot your portfolio wonderful information in here and you obviously are living this idea of taking the complex and making it simple because i can see it in there i have one last question and then please tell people where to get the book more about yourself so my question is i ask everyone this question is let's say that you're at the end of your life and you're sitting on a front porch you could be looking at a mountain a meadow an ocean whatever brings you peace and if you decide to get out your wonderful writing skills to write a letter on what you learned about having a healthy relationship with money, what would the theme of that letter be? Yeah, so it's a big question.
0: I guess <laughs> I mean right off the top, I mean let let's go back to, you know, the the research that I'm sure you're familiar with that that says, you know, beyond a certain point, money no longer adds happiness, happiness to your life. I can certainly see that. I mean, you know, you look back over your life and you you know, try to plot it on the chart with your, uh, your salary and your happiness. And I'm not sure that those things are parallel, right? I mean, I think everybody should, you know, work hard and, and establish themselves in a career. And yes, it's nice to make a good amount of money, but there is a point after which there are things that are more important than that. You know, so my advice then would be choose work that you love and that, you know, pays you adequately. But when you're faced with a decision between what's right financially and what's more important to you and you know, what your priorities are in life, then you know, choose those over the higher salary. And then I think the second part you know, is just you know, maybe more germane to my work, which is just don't make investing a game and don't make it a big source of stress. Reduce it to its simplest component, which is spend less than you earn, save the difference in a low cost diversified portfolio lather, rinse, repeat, and it usually works out. Don't make investing a source of stress in your life. Make it something that, you
1: know, uh, will get you to a point later in your life where you can actually enjoy things with a lot less stress. Well, thank you for that response. I really appreciate this conversation. So talk about your book. Where can people find your book? Any last thing you want to say about what Dan stands for? <laughs> well, I know the book is sort of, it really did kind of
0: encapsulate uh, everything I've been working towards for the last several years. It was, uh, you know, kind of a greatest hits compilation. Like a lot of what's in the book are things that I have written or at least touched on in the past. And it was an attempt to kind of put it all together in a step-by-step process. So if you're, interested in in my blog, for example, but you find a little bit overwhelming, you don't know where to start. That was the book. That's why, you know, I wrote the book. So it's called Reboot Your Portfolio. It's available wherever books are sold, uh, Amazon, Indigo. And if you, I will say too, if you use an independent bookseller, if you've got one
1: in your neighborhood, ask them to order the book and support them. They do great work as well. Well, thank you, Dan. I really appreciate, like I said, the work you've done for many years now to Make sure that people get the sound advice. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate you having me on the show.